Modern science has made many incredible discoveries about the workings of the mind, but how should we interpret these results? Our guest host, Dr. Michael Egnor, discusses the meaning of neuroscience today on Mind Matters News. Welcome to Mind Matters News, where artificial and natural intelligence meet head on. It has been said that philosophy of mind has been the most active discipline of uh, philosophy over the past century or so. Uh, and neuroscience certainly has been among the most active disciplines in biology. And our question really is, how can we understand modern results of neuroscience from a philosophical perspective? What, what does neuroscience mean? Uh, and uh, as my guest today, I have uh, Dr. Bruce Gordon, uh, who is a uh, philosopher of science and an idealist. Uh, Dr. Gordon has fascinating viewpoints on uh, the fundamental nature of reality. Uh, and I should point out Dr. Gordon is Associate Professor of uh, the History and Philosophy of Science at Houston Baptist University, and he's a Senior Fellow at the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute. Welcome, uh, Bruce. It's a privilege to have you uh, with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Roger Scruton, who's one of my uh, favorite authors, famously described modern neuroscience as a uh, as as a massive collection of answers with no memory of the questions, <laughs> and um, so I what I'd like to talk with you about is is what are the questions that are being answered by neuroscientists to understand the mind? What do you think is the most satisfactory metaphysical perspective? Well, it's no secret, given your introduction, that I'm an idealist, and so that I'm going to lean in that direction for saying that immaterial consciousness really needs to be understood as the bedrock of reality. Uh, we know it firsthand, subjectively, from our, our first-person perspective, and uh, its integrated unity in our experience is kind of a fundamental datum. It's a starting point from which we can move to an examination uh, of the world and really an examination of our neurophysiology in an attempt to understand how that affects our experience of consciousness. You know, it's commonly thought that, uh, that an idealist ontology, uh, which would take consciousness as primary uh, and understand material reality in phenomenological terms, uh, would place consciousness beyond the possibility of scientific study. And, and I really don't see things that way at all. In fact, the, the access that we have to the brain is uh, through phenomenological examination. And it's very clear that, that the structure and function of the phenomenological brain constrains and channels our consciousness and capacity for experience of things. But uh, I don't see that fact as standing in the way of recognizing that that consciousness is does not arise from the material uh, but is something different than the material and then provides the basis on which we try to understand what the material world really is uh, whether it's substantial and we're in a kind of dualistic view or whether it's merely phenomenological and and really that 
as I said at the beginning, immaterial consciousness is a bedrock of reality. Not ours, of course, because uh, most of reality is given to us. We don't create it by our own consciousness. We, we experience it through our consciousness. Um, so there has to be a more fundamental consciousness then that is the bedrock of reality. And of course, that's the ultimate direction that theistic ontic idealism is headed in. God provides that ontological ground as the one who imparts uh, structure to reality. And of course, that structure is constitutive of our, of our experience. So that uh, God is the vera causa, if you like, of the phenomenological reality of our experience. And we can explore then the world that he's given to us, including how our experience of our phenomenological experience of our bodies is affected by what's going on as we examine the neurophenomenology of the brain. I, as, as we've talked about, I, I have enormous uh, sympathy for the idealist perspective on things, uh, particularly in physics. I, I think it, it, it's, a, it's a compelling framework. Um, my own perspective has been uh, Thomist, uh, sort of Aristotelian. And, 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 and from the Thomist or Aristotelian perspective, I think there's also a, a great deal of sympathy for the idealist way. I mean, people have said Ar Aristotle was a Platonist of sorts. I mean, he, he, he didn't mm -hmm. completely break from Plato. Um, one of the things that made me a Thomist was in neuroscience, we see a very clear distinction between the dependence of different aspects of the mind on the brain. Mm -hmm. Perception, sensation, memory, emotion, very clearly depend on the brain in an almost total way. That is that if someone cuts my optic nerves, I will not be able to see, period. Uh, there's, 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 there's no ifs, if, ands, or buts. Uh, somebody gives me a shot of adrenaline, I will feel uh, anxious or fearful or excited no ifs, ands, or buts. That's, that's just what happens. And on the other hand, there are aspects of the mind that don't seem to be nearly as, as tightly yoked to brain function, uh, particularly um, the uh, intellect and the will. And uh, as an example of that, one can consider phrenology, which was a, a science uh, of reading the bumps on the skull back in the 19th century and early 20th century. And it, it was a little crazy, but it wasn't as crazy as we think it was. They didn't have any radiology, so they couldn't actually see the brain. They didn't have CAT scans. So uh, the bumps on the skull was about the best they could do. And it was known at that time that certain functions like movement of the limbs or sensations or vision were subserved by specific regions of the brain. So the phrenologists just made the assumption that everything was subserved by a specific region of the brain. So mercy or justice or, or all sorts of personality traits were also in the brain in certain locations. And that failed, of course. That, that's not the case. So I can point to the little group of neurons that make my thumb move but I can't point to any group of neurons that make me um, able to do square roots. There's a difference between the intellect and, as it turns out, the will and the other properties of the mind in the neuroscientific world. And the difference is striking. Wilder Penfield, who was uh, one of the pioneers in epilepsy surgery, asked uh, a question. I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing. Uh, many years ago, he, he asked, why are there no intellectual seizures? Seizures can have practically any content you want to think of, 
I mean, you can have movements, you can lose consciousness, you can have emotions, you can have sensations, you can even have thinking about concrete objects, forced thinking it's called. But you never have calculus seizures. You never have a seizure where you, where, where you have to take second derivatives whether you want to or not. Uh, you also never have morality seizures. You, you never have seizures where you compulsively recite the Ten Commandments. And Penfield says, why not? Why aren't there intellectual seizures if the brain is the source of the intellect? And of course, Aristotle and St. Thomas, you know, thousands of years ago, said the intellect is not material. It doesn't come from the body. It's a separate thing, whereas sensations and perceptions do. And I was amazed at how neuroscience backs that up. And that's actually probably the main reason that, I, that I'm a Thomist, is that Thomism is so beautifully describes modern neuroscience. But I wanted to get your perspective on that perspective. Well, there's a lot about that that seems absolutely right to me. Of course, I think you would also admit that intellectual capacity can be and is affected by what happens to the brain. Without question. Yeah. So you can shut down intellectual capacities by doing certain things to the brain. Right. But uh, at, at the same time, yeah, there are no intellectual seizures, as Penfield uh, remarked. What you might say is that the functioning of the brain is necessary for intellectual activity, but not sufficient for it, whereas it is necessary and sufficient for perception, sensation, memory, emotion, things like that. Well, it is necessary and sufficient in the embodied state. Correct. Yes. Uh, which points to some of my reservations about going full-on Thomist about <laughs> the nature of the human person in that regard. Right. Uh, I do think there is evidence from near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences in, in which you've got veridical perception of the environment while the body is in an unconscious state or even dead that provide indications and, and of course, uh, near-death experiences in the blind as well, where perception is restored right, uh, apart from the body. So, so that we're not observing a situation in which we've got a merely rational soul that survives death, but a soul, all of the capacities of which are, are restored and, and perhaps even uh, heightened in, in terms of, of the vividness of their experience. This is this is what we're seeing from the anecdotal near-death experience literature. Well, one of the um, my understanding of of the of the, of the near-death literature um, uh, is, as you've said, that the the perceptual powers uh, in that state are very much heightened, uh, and not only heightened, but they're different. Uh, an example uh, would be a woman named Pam Pam Reynolds. Uh, she um, underwent aneurysm surgery uh, in Phoenix uh, with uh, uh, Dr. Robert Spetzler, who was a very famous uh, an aneurysm surgeon. And uh, she, her heart was stopped deliberately. She was put on cardiopulmonary bypass so they could stop the blood flow to her brain for about 30 minutes while they fixed the aneurysms af after they had cooled her body down so she wouldn't have brain damage. And during, during this process, she reported being aware of what was going on in the operating room even to the point of reading the uh, serial numbers on the instruments. And she said that she went up to the ceiling, and which a lot of people describe when they've had um, experiences with near death, that they'll pop up to the ceiling. But of course, from the ceiling, you couldn't read the serial numbers on the instruments with normal vision, and because they're, they're tiny. 
so it's a different kind of perception. So I, I don't think that near-death experiences contradict uh, the Aristotelian Thomistic understanding of the mind. It simply says that the substitution soul has a different kind of perception, which of course, St. Thomas would say, yeah, sure, angels, which are separated minds, have a kind of perception. It's just different from, from, from what we have. Well, that, that brings me to some questions about the kind of Thomistic calomorphic dualist position with respect to the constitution of the human person. And I mean, I'm sympathetic to kind of a, a duality of structure and content, uh, if you like, in, in a, an idealist phenomenology. But when it comes to understanding the constitution of the human person, I mean, if we go back to Aristotle, and we can kind of regard Thomas as baptizing Aristotle and injecting an element of Plato in there uh, through Augustine to, to, to try to preserve a Christian metaphysics of the human person, uh, because it's not possible in straightforward Aristotelian metaphysics. Mm -hmm. The soul doesn't exist apart from the body in Aristotelian metaphysics. It's the form of the body, and it, it is that form-matter composite, that halomorphic composite that constitutes the human person. So uh, human beings then don't possess an immortal soul. The form departs, uh, and the body dies, and that's the end of the individual. And of course, Aquinas said, no, that's not what happens. We know that's not what happens in the Christian understanding of the human person. So he has to regard the Aristotelian form as substantial in some way. He has to kind of platonize it so it survives the dissolution of the body. But nonetheless, correct me if I'm wrong, he emphasizes the substantial unity of the human person as an integrated form-matter composite. Yes. And I, I think he put the um, immortal power of the soul, so, so to speak, uh, in the fact that um, the soul had intellect and will, that the human soul had, had intellect and will. So it, it would not cease to exist when the matter of the body became disorganized because it was never completely, it, was, it, it wasn't from the matter of the body. Whereas the soul of an animal that didn't have an intellect and will would cease to exist when the matter of the animal became disorganized. That was his view, and I, I don't see it as necessarily following. Uh, just because you've got a sensate soul doesn't mean that you haven't got uh, a memory and a sense of being that would allow the persistence of the soul independent of the body. Uh, I don't see sensate souls as necessarily being dissolved with the dissolution of the body. Uh, I don't think that follows as a necessary consequence. Uh, what I'm, I'm more concerned about, though, uh, with the, the kind of Thomistic hylomorphic dualism is in the embodied state, right? It, it is the composite that is the person that thinks that that is the, the, the entity that it is, is whole. Um, I'm trying to get at the idea that the thinking subject in the Thomistic dualist case, is the hylomorphic fusion of the soul and the body. But in the disembodied state, it's just the soul. Right. And so it would seem that Thomas's metaphysics isn't really hylomorphic and Aristotelian. It's a good portion of the way to being a, a form of substance dualism. 
in which the, the soul is the true expression of the person, that it can exist independently of the body. Yes, and, and, and there's I think that's always been a tricky aspect of Thomistic dualism is um, is the, the the immortality of the soul this the that it's a subsistent form, but of course Saint Thomas and, and Aristotle would say that the 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 form and matter of the body uh, are not substances in and of themselves. They're they're principles, principles of intelligibility and principles of uh, uh, individuation. So that. The notion that they're separate substances—I—I—I I, I think Saint Thomas would say that the human soul can exist apart from the body, but that's not its natural state. That's not—that's not the way it was created or meant to exist. And I guess it would be a substance in that capacity, but normally it's not a substance. It's—it's—it's it's, it's a principle of of a body. The, the the body itself, matter and form, is is the substance in the living human being. I mean that that. There's a little tap dancing going on there, and I, I yeah, and and it's a, some tap dancing that I don't find terribly convincing. Right, right, right. right. Maybe, maybe if I if I danced faster, it would be. It would be. <laughs> um, yes, yes, I, I I would agree. But the difficulty with idealism in this context is that first of all, I it's an enormously powerful and beautiful way of looking at things, and I think that it is basically true, but. There is a granularity to um, the Thomistic view that, to me, comports beautifully with neuroscience in ways that idealism is it, it almost too vague. It's, as I said, idealism doesn't speak to Penfield's question: Why are there no intellectual seizures? And Thomism speaks to it eloquently. That's what gets me: is that as, as a practicing scientist, at, at least a biologist, as opposed to uh, to, uh, to a physicist. Aristotle and St. Thomas have a lot more to say to me than Plato does. Or Barclay. <laughs> or Barclay. Or Barclay, yes. Well, perhaps. Uh, I don't find the idea that the intellect in particular is less tied to the body than the senses, uh, particularly a reason to embrace uh, a kind of Thomistic hylomorphism as over against uh, idealism. I think certainly there's an interesting correspondence in the Thomistic case. Uh, I, I don't see it as something that lacks sense from an idealist perspective either, because consciousness is integrally tied to the senses in the embodied state, whereas the rational processing need not be. Mm -hmm. Um, what I find puzzling in the Thomistic sense is the perpetuation and heightening of the sensory capacity apart from the body in near-death experiences, when I don't think that's what Thomas would have expected. Uh, I think he would have expected the rational intellect to descend into sensory darkness. Well, I I don't know. I mean, it's certainly... Um... St. Thomas wrote and thought a great deal about angelic intellects, angelic minds. And um, angels are perfectly capable of perceiving things. Perfect. In fact, they, they perceive at a much, much higher level than we do. But they perceive differently. They have a different way of knowing. And my suspicion is, uh, St. Thomas never spoke about near-death experiences that I know of, but my suspicion is that he would say that in the near-death state that the human mind is 
acting more like an, an, an angelic mind because it's disembodied. The other perspective on this that I think is very, very interesting is that one may say that, of course, when a person reports what he experienced in a near-death experience, he's always doing the reporting from an embodied state. That is, it's, he's looking back on what happened and trying to explain it using language that makes sense as an embodied person. And uh, maybe that language describes as perceptual an actual experience that was not perceptual in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a purely materialistic way. That is, that that's, the, that that's the most sense he can make of it. Perhaps it points to the fact that finite beings must experience things uh, from a finite perspective, which implies uh, a locational one in a way. And I, I, I kind of see this as, as fitting well with an idealist conception of, of what goes on, mm -hmm. such that death is not so much uh, a separation of the soul from the body. Uh, so much as a change of perceptual environment in which the initial embodied state is left behind. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's another state of consciousness that, that persists. But, but the thing that is consciousness remains constant throughout. And in fact, if you want to take it to a full-blown Christian metaphysics, you've got kind of a, an experiential environment 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0 sure, sure. <laughs> that, that would be associated with the the uh, initial experience of this world, then death, and the I wouldn't necessarily want to describe death as a disembodied state. Maybe it's an otherly bodied state, and then the resurrected state. Um, so anyway, I, I think there's kind of a seamlessness of the the metaphysics of the subject in in idealism that's that's easy to understand that that is uh certainly very difficult if you're a physicalist and if you're dualist in involves other puzzling aspects that we we haven't gotten into mm -hmm. the um uh, another example that i think uh is, is 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 really fascinating of the salience of the thomistic uh view of of psychology um, is the work of Roger Sperry. Uh, Sperry was a, um, a neuroscientist who studied split brain surgery patients. Uh, these are patients who had epilepsy and um, whose corpus callosums, uh, which is the fiber bundle that connects the two hemispheres of the brain, were severed to control the epilepsy. And he studied these people in great detail um, and uh, won the Nobel Prize for his work. And he found that th there was a perceptual splitting that often occurred, where, for example, the right hemisphere would perceive the visual field on the left side of the visual field and vice versa for the left hemisphere, and the right arm was controlled by the left hemisphere, right arm controlled by the right, uh, by the opposite hemisphere, and so on. And there are all sorts of fascinating but very subtle perceptual changes that went on. But he didn't find, uh, and he didn't comment much on this, but if you look at his work, he didn't find there was any splitting of the intellect or of the will, which goes along again with you know, Penfield's observation about no intellectual seizures. And from a Thomistic standpoint, Sperry's results are very understandable. The material brain was cut, so you're going to have sensations and perceptions and things like that are also cut and can be divided. But you can't divide the intellect and will in the same way. Mm -hmm. What about the memory? Uh, Sperry didn't look at memory. Penfield looked at looked at memory. Penfield found that when he stimulated the brain, he could easily stimulate 
memories. He had thousands of memories that uh, that uh, that he stimulated. And curiously, memory. Although I think there is some debate about this within the Aristotelian Thomistic world, memory is is considered part of the sensitive soul, part of the of material soul, not part of the intellectual, uh, rational soul. So memory is very easily elicited, um, and seizures can can involve memories. And people would argue that when you remember something abstract. You can say, well, I remember calculus. Doesn't that mean that calculus must be sensitive? And people would argue that remembering calculus is simply knowing it. It's not the same thing as memory, like remembering your grandmother's face, re remembering the smell of uh, apple pie, something like that, which is a different thing. Sure. Our identity and our sense of self is intimately bound up, not just with rational memory or knowledge, sure. but with sensory memory as well. Sure. Absolutely. And certainly that is something that we would carry with us, presumably, through death in a near-death experience or <laughs> a permanent death experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering in that respect, uh, because Thomas, uh, and I'm coming back to a theme that I mentioned earlier, Thomas would seem to think that animals do not ever survive death, that their sensate souls are so integrally bound up with their, their bodies that the dissolution of the body means the end of them. Right. And again, I don't see that necessarily as following, metaphysically speaking, from... The way I would understand it is that if, if one understands the soul as the uh, substantial form of the body, uh, the soul is essentially an organizational principle. And um, when the body is disorganized, when the matter of the body is disorganized, then the organizational principle is, is gone. Whereas there are aspects of the human soul that are not linked to matter in the same way, uh, that are not organizational principles of matter. And the human soul thereby is capable of surviving uh, the disorganization of the body. I, I see it as, as a matter of organization, disorganization, that when you, when you disorganize an animal, there's nothing left. Where you, you disorganize a human, and you have the, the intellect and will, which were not part of the body's organization to start with. So they aren't lost when you disorganize the body. Okay. Well, I, I think that then that difference, would you say the human soul then in Thomistic perception is a rational, substantial, formal soul? Yes. Uh, whereas there is no... Of course, th this is getting back to the form as the principle of the organization of the body and the combination then forming the substance. Apart from human beings, then, there has to be this rational substance uh, that, it, that is part of humanity, but you see as not being part in any respect of, or at least Thomas didn't, of lower animals. Correct. Correct. I, I, basically, I, I think a, a nice way that, 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 I, that I think of it, I, th I think is, is true to what Aristotle and St. Thomas felt, was that animals cannot think of things that are not concrete, that animals um, can only think of things that are perceptions, but they can't think without perceptions. Uh, humans can think without perceptions. Uh, I can think of the square root of negative one um, as a concept but there is no object in the world that is the square root of negative one. Uh, whereas, and like a very good example is my my dog uh, loves his dog biscuits. That's all he thinks about. He wants he wants more dog dog biscuits. He loves them, but he never thinks about nutrition. 
because nutrition is abstract. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that was the big distinction that that animals must have concrete objects to think about. Humans can think without concrete objects. Okay. And I would still say the grounds for concluding that there is no substantial animal soul, while I understand the domestic reasoning and, and the kind of constraints that are placed upon it, don't seem definitive to me. And of course, if one is not a hylomorphic dualist of a domestic variety, but rather a substance dualist or an idealist, of course, none of those conclusions follow. True. I, I believe that St. Thomas believed it, certainly modern Thomas have said, I think St. Thomas himself believed it, that um, if God chose, he could recreate the animal soul. So if if you want to be with your deceased puppy <laughs> in heaven, you could, you know, if God is willing to do you a favor. So there, there's, there's no reason why the animal can't be, can't be re, uh, recreated. However, um, the soul is lost at the disintegration of the body in the animal. You wind up with the same sorts of questions that physicalists uh, who are Christians and see us as uh, being reconstituted at the resurrection, but not existing in between. Uh, You wind up with problems of gappy existence. In in this case, uh, for animals. Uh, (laughs) Sure, sure. sure. But I I, I think that the Thomist view is that uh, and I do agree with you. There is a um, there is a paucity of rigor in this. This is uh, uh, you know it doesn't have the kind of rigor we we'd like to see. But the Thomas view is that due to the rational abstract nature of the of the human soul, there is a power in the soul that tends to make it immortal in a way that an animal soul lacks. And I understand that's what's being said. Yes. So anyway, so that, that that is for me. That's a lot of of the appeal of of Thomism is that I see it remarkably corresponding to neuroscience. Uh, just uh, it, it takes my breath away. The, the, the idea that Saint Thomas presaged what Penfield found and what Leibniz found, or what um, uh, Sperry found, uh, what the phrenologists ultimately found, all of that was said a thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, Bruce, I'm. It's it's been a privilege. It's been fascinating to talk with you. I'd love to do this again. And it's like we've we've opened up avenues, each of which could take up many many podcasts. So, uh, thank you very much for uh, speaking with us. Uh, you're you're quite welcome, and uh, I'm I'm happy to continue the conversation when we have opportunity to do so. I would love I'd love to do so. Thank thank you so much, and to our listeners, thank you for listening uh, to Mind Matters News. This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.